kicking kids out of school, suspending them for minor misbehaviors is very harmful to those individual students, to entire schools, to their parents, to entire communities. Welcome to Talking About Kids. I'm your host, R. Bradley Snyder, researcher, activist, author of The Five Simple Truths of Raising Kids, and now podcast host. Today's episode is what we know about school safety, and my guest is Aaron Kupchuk. Aaron is a professor of sociology at the University of Delaware and the author of numerous articles and books, including Homeroom Security, School Discipline in an Age of Fear. And when I think of Aaron, I think of the challenge to speak truth to power because that is what Aaron has done for decades. In the face of demands to lock up more scary teenagers or to turn schools into prisons just to protect the students from themselves, Aaron has stood by the research about what is actually good for kids. Sharing that science in USA Today, and congressional hearings, and everything in between. And I'm excited for you to hear what he has to say about school safety. This podcast was sponsored in part by the Arizona Department of Health Services Must Stop Bullying campaign through its Title V Maternal and Child Health Program. For more information, go to muststopbullying.org. And now, the interview. So I can trace back my interest in school safety to a specific day when I was doing research for my dissertation. My dissertation was on prosecuting juveniles in juvenile courts and in adult courts. Mm -hmm. I was fascinated by how we just uh, take a 14-year-old perhaps who has done something bad and presume they're an adult. And I I was in this day in the juvenile court and the judge started complaining about the flood of very petty cases that were coming into his courtroom from schools. And you know, I, I began to think more about that and realized that if I'm really interested in how we police and punish children, which I am, then, you know, a very small percentage makes it to the justice system. Thankfully, it's a small percentage, but they're almost all in schools. And that's mm-hmm. really where the, the focal point ought to be for understanding how kids get introduced to policing and punishment. So that was really what what started, uh, that was about 20 years ago. That's what started my interest in school safety and school policing and school punishment. And what were some of the things that struck you initially when you started to look at school safety? Were there any big, uh, you know, initial revelations that kept you interested and and kept you digging? Yeah. How safe schools are. (laughs) You know, schools today are so much safer than they were a generation ago. Right. So the government, the National Center for Education Statistics, branch of the uh, Department of Education, uh, collects data on, on this issue. And um, they've been collecting high-quality data since the early 90s and reporting that every year. And we can see the timeline, the trend line of, of school safety particularly students' reports of being victimized, whether mm-hmm. something bad is done to them in school. And it's this amazing drop in victimization from 1993 onward that is still continued today. 
Schools, nationally speaking, certainly there are some schools with real problems, but nationally speaking, students are so much safer in schools today than they were um, a generation ago, back, right. going back to the early 90s. And, and let's talk about that a little bit, because um, I, I want to get into school shooting, which seems to be the only thing that anybody wants to talk about now. But school, sa- but school shootings are only one element of school safety. And so when you're talking about safety, what, what sort of things are you, are you capturing in that number? Every year, there are usually around 20 to 30 young people who are killed, who are shot right. or killed in a school. Right. And that's you know, far too many. Right. But when we compare it to any of the other potential causes of death that young people in this country face, right. it doesn't even make the list. Right. Right. It doesn't make the list. So your question is about what uh, school safety includes. Typically, we include things like, you know, whether um, people have been bullied or mm-hmm. if we're looking at victimization, we're looking at whether they're a victim of theft or whether they've been assaulted. Uh, and those kinds of things, uh, whether they've been in fights and, and been hurt. Yeah. And so, you know, you're right. I, I've seen that same trend that you're talking about, you know, with the schools are, you know, where the rate of victimization is less than a quarter than it was, you know, back in the 90s. And that school safety number, as you mentioned, that includes assault and theft and burglary and simple assault and sexual assault. There's all these things that go into that number. And yet the only one we hear about is you know is school shootings right now the so most rare the, the the rarest of those things mm-hmm. right thankfully the rarest yes. and and that's a number that is a tricky number because you know in preparing to talk to you today i was looking back over and i was you know, revisiting the discussion i had with sarah lindstrom johnson where we talked a little bit about school safety and i just wanted to brush up on some of those numbers and i can understand why it's confusing for so many people because School shootings get reported a number of different ways, don't they? They they get reported as the number of incidents that involve a gun. They get reported as the number of incidents that and by the number of victims per shooter. They get reported by the number of deaths. So there's all these different ways that that number gets reported. But when we actually look at, I think, the thing that people are most concerned about, which is the number of students who who are actually shot and killed in schools in a given year, to your point, that number has, there's peaks and valleys, but it's not going up, not in any sort of like statistically significant way. I recently spoke to uh, a parent of uh, a child who was killed in, in a school in a shooting incident. And I mean, you know, his pain was, was palpable. And, and right. I feel I'm, in, in trying to contextualize these numbers, I don't mean to, for a moment right. to diminish right. the horror and that pain um, or to suggest that that's okay. Um, but it's still worth looking at a broader context, I think. Now, to your question about different ways of counting, it's absolutely true. And in fact, I, you know, an organization that, well, frankly, I very much support Every Town for Gun Safety. You know, I think they're doing good things and lobbying for more common sense gun control laws. They've also spread what I would take to be some pretty bad misinformation about school shootings. Hmm. Right. So they have a very inclusive count of what is a school shooting where uh, an incident that occurs within a certain you know, range of a school, yeah. perhaps at 3 a.m., would count. 
um, you know, and, and as with many others that aren't what we think of as school shootings, meaning a child or, or an adult comes in during the school day to do violence to other students. Well, and, and I appreciate your sensitivity around, around that, that you don't want to be cavalier about any deaths and and we certainly not. Um, but you know, your work informs policy. You are trying to put your work in the hands of people that change how schools are set up, how they're run. And in doing so, we need to pay attention to where are the real dangers and where are those incredibly rare dangers. And so in that area of your work, you know, what do you see schools doing to respond to school, to school violence that's working? And, and what do you see that they're doing to respond this, to school violence that's not working? And maybe we'll start with the what's not working, Aaron. Well, that's a much longer answer, unfortunately. Right. Um, much of my research looks at what we're doing that is not working and in ways that harm students. Hmm. So since the 90s, we've um, really buckled down with things like zero tolerance policies, which have now come out of favor right. a bit. We've flooded our schools with police officers, we, as well as other security practices like drug sniffing police dogs and surveillance cameras and so on. Um, you know, and we suspend, we suspend so many more students than we used to, millions a year. And typically for very minor behaviors. Right. You know, the most common tend to be talking back to teachers, uh, you know, things like that, cursing, dress code violations, truancy, tardiness. Um, right. Not for violence, not for drugs, not for weapons. Those tend to be very rare, thankfully. And, and all of these things can be harmful, right? So kicking kids out of school, suspending them for minor misbehaviors is very harmful to those individual students, Mm -hmm. to entire schools, to their parents, to entire communities. Right. Um, You know, in in a variety of ways, uh, those suspensions are harmful. Putting police officers in schools might be necessary in the rare school that has serious violent problem, but problems with violence. But in most schools, Unfortunately, even well-intended, caring police officers can do unintended harm, more harm than good. Um, and, and how does that work? What's the, what's the mechanism around that? Because, you know, I've been in the position of sharing your research uh, with those school resource officers. And I had to stand in front of them at one time in a room and say, you make schools less safe. Um, I wasn't very popular at that time. Um, but I, I got to explain why that is or why we the, the research suggests that they can make schools safe. And they learn from that. And they uh, I believe that some of them really changed how they approached their job. So explain mm-hmm. how a police officer could make a school less safe. Sure. Well, and I'll bet you weren't popular in explaining <laughs> that. But there are a variety of different things that happen. And, and I want to be clear that, um, you know, I, I'm not thinking and talking about abusive police officers. Right. You know, we've seen video clips of them on the news. Mm-hmm. And in my research, I've met many school resource officers, SROs, as they're commonly referred to, mm-hmm. who are just phenomenal, like really caring people who have volunteered for that duty in order to help children. You know, they, they stand in the hallways, they high five kids walking in, they try to help the kids feel safe and valued. And I appreciate them as people very much. Um, and yet their presence has 
influences on what happens in the school in a variety of ways. One thing is that schools with police officers suspend more, more students, particularly black students, for low-level offenses, for minor uh, misbehaviors. Mm. So we're increasing, you know, the problem of school suspensions, which is out of control in many ways and right. so harmful to students and entire schools. We also know that schools with more police officers tend to have more arrests than others, even, and I know listeners might be saying, well, maybe the more violent or, or you know, schools or schools with more crime problems are where we put the police. And of course, the researchers studying this have controlled for the actual level of perceived crime right. and disorder and in, in a variety of complex you know, statistical ways. Um, and that's not the explanation. Yes, that matters, but that's even controlling for that and comparing similar schools, putting police officers in schools means more arrests, typically for very minor misbehaviors and disproportionately, again, of black youth. Mm. So we're increasing inequality. We're increasing the harms that students face, uh, which then can have negative influences on their future behaviors, right? right? These things mean that students act up more, not less, hmm. making schools somewhat less safe. Um, that also has a, an impact on the really important school climate, right? So one of the things that we know and have known for decades is one of the best ways to maintain school safety is by improving the school social climate. Mm -hmm. That means that uh, we want school. So a school with an inclusive climate is one where students feel valued and respected and listened to like, like they're part of a community where people are watching each other's backs and helping one another. Right. Those schools tend to have less misbehavior and less violence than other schools that are similar in other ways. And it makes sense. Right. If you feel a part of something, you're less likely to violate its rules or hurt other people within it or right. the institution itself. And what I found in some of my research is even these well-intended police officers who care deeply about kids, their presence in subtle ways can change the school climate so that it's slightly less a place where we are focused on students' social, emotional, and mm -hmm. even academic well-being and slightly more a place of law enforcement. Right. Right. When situations arise or when there's there are problems, we have a choice of how we think about ways to respond or who responds and how we respond. And often it's police officers responding in a policing role rather than, say, right. a therapist or a social worker or counselor responding from a therapeutic role. I mean, it they are almost by definition an outsider to that school's culture. They they are, again, almost by definition, not part of that community. And another area of the research on this shows that when they show up, too often the other members of that school community go, oh, okay, so now there's somebody who's responsible for school safety, and I'm just going to let the SRO, the, the police officer, deal with that. And the other adults in that school and even some of the kids go, well, it's now their responsibility. I don't have to intervene. I'm not I'm no longer going to worry myself looking for the warning signs. I'm just going to let all of these incidents go to that police officer. And they kind of, you know, acquiesce and give up their role in creating school safety. Like the police officer being there, not from that community means that the other people from inside that community back away from the community as well. And so it kind of creates this weird, perfect storm where 
additional incidents can occur. Brad, I thought I was supposed to be the one with the insights here. Well, you know, I think that originally you told me that. I think that's where that comes from. <laughs> so if, if school resource officers don't make schools safer, Aaron, it, it has to be that that metal detectors and um, security cameras and higher fences, they must make schools safer. Yeah, not so much. Um, I mean, security cameras don't seem all that harmful. Um, they seem expensive. Okay. And so they might be taking money away from better approaches to supporting students and reducing student misbehavior. Um, but uh, certainly, and metal detectors are only, they're, they're still thankfully somewhat rare and not particularly growing. They're in about 10% of schools. Um, they're much more likely to be found in urban schools with many students of color. Mm -hmm. um, um, but no, the, these other security uh, mechanisms uh, tend not to be very effective in terms of preventing crime in some ways that, or preventing misbehavior in some ways they can be harmful because they might be uh, indicators of danger to mm. students. What's interesting, police can be that way too. We, in, in research I've done where we've interviewed students about having police officers is really fascinating where you see on the one hand, you know, I, I want to be clear that the, the, the news about having police in schools, it's not all bad, right? right? They do help some students feel safer. They can respond if there is a, you know, a real emergency. They can be, you know, helpful to schools and so on. Um, on balance, they, their presence, unfortunately, does more harm than good, but it's not only in negative direction. Right. Anyway, with students, it's really interesting that I've often heard in my research statements to the extent of, well, the fact that we have a police officer here, you know, it makes me nervous that there's all this problem with violence and that right. we need to be protected. But I'm glad they're there. Their presence makes me feel safer. So on the one hand, it is a signal of danger causing anxiety, right. but on the other hand, helps them feel more comfortable in that you know, that this person is there to protect them, yeah. given that that danger. Well, it is. I mean, that that signaling that goes on, and I know that um, you wrote about this a lot in your book, Homeroom Security, that that signaling that goes on, you know, th these implements, this mechanization of safety, you know, we look at those things and we say, well, those are in place because danger is going to occur. And, and so there are students that even in your research, they even act as if they are supposed to be dangerous. They they look at those indicators and say, "Oh, I'm expected to be, you know, misbehaving. I'm 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 expected to act out. I'm expected to be aggressive, or expected to be in danger, right, from somebody else coming in with a weapon or or doing seeking to do harm." Yeah, the the situation on the ground um, in schools does not bear much similarity to what we talk what we talked about before, the actual safety of most right. schools in the U.S. Uh, and in ways that, that do harm. We, we, we focused on what doesn't work because sometimes in research that's easier uh, to discern. But let's talk a little bit about what does work to make schools mm -hmm. safer. Sure. And, and before I do that, it's not just that it's easier in research. In this particular field, it, it's much of what we do, maybe most of what we do is problematic. Right. So it, um, 
What does work, though, is, well, we talked about building inclusive school climates Mm -hmm. already. That is one of the best things that we can do um, for helping young people avoid trouble, stay safe, uh, and so on, is building an inclusive school climate where they feel respected, valued, and listened to. Mm -hmm. So, you know, kind of the opposite of zero tolerance policy, right? where it's my way or the highway, and I don't care about context or why you broke that rule. You're, you're out the door. Um, but listening to children, respecting them and valuing them. That is a number one of what we can do. There are a variety of other strategies. They're not perfect, um, but they are. They seem to be helpful. For example, restorative justice, mm-hmm. which has overall positive evaluations, but not universally positive evaluations. But restorative justice involves what, when there are violations of school rules or even uh, law within the school, rather than assuming we have to kick someone out, we instead sit down. We have maybe you know remediation or or you know perhaps a victim offender circle. Um, we talk things through and try to find how we can make things whole. How can we restore what has right. been lost to whoever the victim is, whether it be a teacher, whether it be the school itself, whether it be another student, and so on. Um, you know, I've written a lot about what I think are some fairly you know, would be relatively easy to implement strategies that are think are in line with restorative justice. For example, I've had many teachers tell me that the number one reason why students tend to act up in class, making their jobs difficult, mm-hmm. is that students don't understand what's going on in, in class. They don't understand yeah. the academic material. So they act up as a way to perhaps out of anger, uh, you know, because the teacher is making them feel bad about themselves or to deflect attention right. and so on. So what do we do? We kick them out and they fall farther behind. And almost, you know, in in very, very few schools is that ever met with any kind of tutoring. And that's just, yes, there's a cost to that, but long-term savings to that if we can reduce misbehavior and make teachers' lives easier. So things like when students do act up in class, take them, take two minutes and take them out in the hallway and, and have a discussion like, we normally, you know, I respect you. Normally you respect me. What's going on today? And there might be a good reason. There might be, or it might be a reason. There might be something going on in that young person's life that we can help with um, or send them to a counselor with or direct them to resources for rather than making their lives harder. Um, it could mean that we just need to give them tutoring. Right. They need, you know, um, you know, these are, you know, relatively low cost, but long-term would be savings of time, effort, and money. Uh, in terms of, and and would be very helpful to people. Other strategies that appear effective are things like um, social emotional learning strategies, Mm -hmm. positive behavioral interventions and supports. Uh, Now, positive behavioral interventions and supports, for example, has a lot of evidence supporting it as effective. And the idea there is to a um, model positive behaviors, set clear rules and model them. And to B, when students violate the rules, you then have a, a, an escalating series of interventions where you're focused not on punishment, but on trying to help them enact the behaviors that you need to see, right? By supporting them and teaching them. And PBIS has come under criticism, particularly for um, advocates of students with disabilities. Mm. Not, you know, it, and if it is implemented in a way that sees it as a one-size-fits-all expectation, it is problematic. Right. But the logic behind it of supporting students, of modeling positive behaviors, 
supporting students, seeing violation of rules as, you know, something that is a chance for intervention rather right. than a chance for punishment. I think that, 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 well, I know that's very promising based on the evidence. In every episode, I address a question from listeners, and this question comes from Matt, and it is, are there best practices for reducing or preventing student anxiety when conducting drills and discussing safety in school? Well, I think that's a great question, Matt. Um, and, and I should note that I am not an expert in, in terms of mental health of mm -hmm. young people, um, but I do know a lot about the policy implications of, of doing the things that we do in schools. And, you know, from my perspective, the best thing that we can do to reduce student anxiety is to keep it in context of how dangerous and safe schools actually are. Right. I can't tell you how many educators I've heard from in my research who've said things like, you know, it's not a matter of if there's going to be a school shooting here, but when which just is not, I mean, from a statistical perspective, I mean, yes, these things happen too often and they have, could happen anywhere, but it's, they're still very rare events. Um, and so keeping it in perspective, kind of like the way fire drills are. Right. So first and foremost, to reduce anxiety, let's look at those students that often are thought about less and let's put them in the forefront of our thinking. Um, and that is students with disabilities, including cognitive disabilities, but because we know that one of the triggers for many people with cognitive disabilities is anxiety, is uncertainty, and nobody likes to feel um, unempowered, like they're, that they're not in control of what's happening to them. So I recognize that these drills need to be happen in random ways, but they should happen, I believe, in ways where students feel in control of what's going on. Um, and, and where they don't feel like they are powerless. I think those are great points. Uh, I'm curious if you upstage all your guests by having such great <laughs> points, <laughs> but I appreciate them for sure. Aaron, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I, I learned a lot. This is such an important topic, and I really appreciate your research and your continuing dedication to it. Well, thank you. I appreciate that you're doing this and, um, you know, spreading the word about how to help kids. And thank you for having me on it. That was Aaron Kupchak. For more information about Aaron, including links to his books and the research he and I discussed, please visit our website, talkingaboutkids.com. From there, you also can find out about upcoming episodes, suggest a topic, learn more about me and my books, or submit your questions for future guests. If your question gets used, you will receive a fabulous Talking About Kids mug. Our theme song is by The Senators. For more of their music, go to thesenatorsmusic.com. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Talking About Kids is a weekly podcast, so please subscribe. And remember, kids are young goats and young humans. And the difference is that young goats are easier to manage. <laughs>